Hi, good morning. My name is Tim Parker. I'm one of the uh, men's ministry leaders here, and I have the, uh, the distinct honor to get to introduce your speaker today. So most of, uh, most of the guys from men's ministry know Jamie Bennett, but I just wanted to share quickly about uh, who he is and what he is in God's kingdom. We, uh, for you guys, I, I certainly hope that this last year, it's getting really close to about a year that we've been studying God's word, which has been amazing. Uh, I hope it's been a true, true blessing for each and every one of you. Uh, it's, it's fun to watch over the years that, that I've been involved in, in the ministry here at TBA, how God continues to put people in place, how God continues to add pieces of the puzzle together. So this young man right here has uh, come, uh, started really speaking into my life about a year ago. Jamie's uh, involved in men's ministry leadership. He's a small group leader. He's a, uh, a D group leader. Uh, he helps in kids ministry. He's a leader back there in kids ministry. So he is truly stepping up in every area, uh, touching every facet of TBA life here. Um, he's also going to seminary. So we're excited about what's going on with, uh, Jamie. We got, uh, Jack weekly over there cat calling him. So, <laughs> so I'm excited for you guys to get to hear Jamie Bennett bring God's word to you today. So if you would help me welcome Jamie Bennett to the stage. Well, thank you, Tim. Um, I think you missed a few adjectives, though, like amazing, awesome, godly, and beautiful. Now, probably most of you realize that I'm not talking about me anymore, but about my wife. And so today um, is a pretty awesome moment for me. Not only is this the first time I get to speak with y'all, but it is our 19th anniversary yeah. I love you and I cherish you and I look forward for the rest of our life being with you. So it is my privilege and my honor to be here today and to bring the message that God has for all of us. In this message, we will explore the ways that we define and defend our faith and in particular the gospel message. This week we began the F260 reading plan with 1 Corinthians 15. So if you'll turn in your Bible or your app and uh, head to that chapter, we're going to spend the rest of the, the morning in that chapter. Would you also please stand with me as we read from God's Word? Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says. Starting in verse 3, for what I passed on to you is as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. 
Thank you. You can be seated. You see, Paul was prompted to write this letter because of division in the Corinthian church, and he needed to address some faulty theological beliefs, especially related to the gospel message and the resurrection of Christ. Even in the early church, the apostles had to both define what Christianity is and defend its claims. Not only had false teaching already crept in the church as Jesus had warned, but the Greek culture was also invading the church and they viewed the resurrection of Christ as a repulsive teaching. The passage we just read was probably an early creed formed during the period between Christ's resurrection and Paul's Damascus conversion. This statement may actually be the very first summary of Christian faith, predating Paul's letters by up to 15 years. You see, creeds were developed in the early church to define and defend the faith against early heresies like Gnosticism and Arianism, which are two faulty views that change the biblical picture of who Jesus is. What was present in those times, we see present today as well. There truly is nothing new under the sun. These same errors exist today either in denying who Jesus is or outright denying that God even exists. I want you to consider this scenario. A young man attends church all of his life. He reads the Bible occasionally and attends youth group while he's in high school. He learns that Jesus is the only answer to the questions in his life, and he knows that he must have faith in Christ for his salvation. His parents arrange for him to spend time with other Christians so that he doesn't fall into the wrong crowd. He appears to follow after God, pray, read the Bible, and live a growing Christian faith. From this perspective, everything looks pretty good. He graduates high school and he heads off to college. His parents warn him that he might face opposition in college and that he must hold on to his faith. He joins a Christian club while he's at college and they decide to go out onto the streets and hand out invitations to their next church service. An atheist approaches and begins to speak with the young man and his friends and begins to gently engage them about their beliefs. Their initial assurance begins to fade as the atheist asks carefully worded questions about the things they think they know by faith. The atheist gives no evidence for atheism and neither does he give evidence against Christianity either. He does one thing. He asks questions about faith as a way of knowing. He remains calm and friendly, and as the discussion closes, you can visibly see that one of the Christians is upset. This scenario, unfortunately, is not a piece of fiction. This is a real-world scenario. You can go right now onto YouTube and watch it play out. A man named Peter Bogosian has written a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists. And this is the tactic that he encourages what she calls street epistemology. It's just a play on words for those Christians that do street evangelism. Epistemology is just a fancy word that means how you know something. With this technique, he is attacking how someone has faith as a way of knowing. For instance, when someone makes a claim about Jesus, he asks how they know that by faith. So what in the world is he talking about? The idea is that he believes that Christians can only define what they believe by simply saying that they have faith, and he plays a game of gotcha because he defines faith as belief without evidence. Therefore, instead of attacking the claims of Christianity, he attacks faith in general. 
But that's not the only issue that we're faced with in this world. It's still very popular to hear other challenges like that Jesus was just a good person. Or maybe you've heard that the Bible is full of errors. Even in the church, you'll hear people challenge the authority of the Bible and its claims on gender, sexual relationships, the sanctity of life, and on who Jesus is. So how do we respond to these things? Daniel Aiken, the president of Southeastern Baptist Seminary, says, Christians in the 21st century as never before must know what they believe and why they believe it. They must be able to define and defend the faith. Apologetics is the theological study of the claims of Christianity and the practical application of defending those claims. Did you know that every one of us is an apologist? We should be. If you ever had anyone ask you, why do you believe that? then the answer that you gave is an apologetic. The word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, try to get that out, which simply means a reasoned defense. It doesn't mean we're to apologize for our faith, but instead to stand for, firm on what we believe and to defend it. We get that word and the command to practice apologetics from 1 Peter 3.15, which says, in your hearts, Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. What we see in the New Testament is a continual application of apologetics in the letters of Paul and all the other apostles. And in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul used an early Christian creed to define the Christian faith and to defend the resurrection of Christ. Today, we're going to explore four points that are stated in this creed that will help all of us do the same. The first thing we'll notice is that the gospel message was developed and communicated soon after the death of Christ. Paul begins the passage by stating, Now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved if you hold to the message I preach to you unless you believed in vain. And here's the key part. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. One of the attacks on Christianity and the Bible today is to question the gospel tradition's historical authenticity. These people state that the oral tradition concerning Jesus was corrupted by human error and was developed hundreds of years after the death of, death of Jesus. However, here's what we do know historically about the letter to the Corinthians. Based on internal evidence, we see that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians between 53 and 56 AD. We also know of early historical references that attribute the letter to Paul, even as early as 96 AD. We're still in the first century. And according to the book of Acts, Paul's conversion encounter with Jesus occurred approximately 34. And he was discipled shortly thereafter by the saints in Damascus. It was from this time with Ananias and the Christians in Damascus that Paul was taught this gospel message. And this is the same important message that he passed on to the Corinthians. So we can conclude that 1 Corinthians was composed in the first century less than 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. As Christian apologists, we can have both assurance and provide evidence that the gospel message was the same message throughout church history ever since the day of Pentecost. It is indeed an early message containing truth. 
The second thing we can observe is that Paul twice references Scripture as the foundation of the gospel message. In verse 3, Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And verse 4, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is a consistent message among all the apostles. What you'll notice first is an appeal to evidence. And then shortly afterwards, an appeal to Scripture as the backing for the gospel message. In 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 through 19, the apostle Peter follows the same pattern. He states, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you power, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have confirmed our pro- we ha- also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter here is stating that he and all of the apostles were eyewitnesses to the glory of Jesus Christ at the transfiguration. This is an appeal to eyewitness testimony. But here's the important thing to catch. It was the word of God that was strongly confirmed by the transfiguration. In fact, Peter says, strongly confirmed. Author and apologist Ravi Zacharias says, all the experience in the world, even experiences like Peter's at the transfiguration, ultimately diminish in the light of the authority of scripture. Our task as apologists is to defend the gospel message in light of the authority of Scripture. We must connect the experience of the gospel with the knowledge of the gospel. Just last month, an opinion piece appeared in USA Today advocating for Christian acceptance of the LGBTQ identity movement. It stated specifically that the Bible is wrong. The headline reads, American churches must reject literalism and admit that we got it wrong on gay people. But it is the sub-headline that says it all. It states, churches continue hemorrhaging members until we face the truth. Being a fearful Christian does not mean accepting everything the Bible teaches. Now, here's the problem, the bigger problem with that article. The author is an ordained minister. This is the reality of the position we find ourselves in today, church, Even those who are called first to defend the gospel message have succumbed to the lie that our postmodern culture has propagated. That is that the Bible contains errors. If we suggest that the Bible has errors, then we are preaching a different Christ and a different Christianity. To deny the authority of scripture is to make up your own gospel. Jesus Christ, the very one who died for our sins and rose again, did not give us that option. He repeatedly referenced scripture as the only authority that should shape our lives and our beliefs. As an example, we can look at the account in Matthew chapter 22 when the Sadducees tried to trap Jesus by challenging him on the resurrection of the body. He responded with the authority of the Bible. It says, Jesus answered them, you are mistaken because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Our hope and faith in Christ is rooted and founded on the authority of scripture. We in this church affirm the authority of scripture. The early Christians affirmed the authority of scripture and Jesus Christ, our savior, affirmed the authority of scripture. No doubt that we 
that we must know what it is we believe, why we believe it, and why it matters. These are matters that, can, that carry eternal significance, and we must be willing to defend biblical authority. For it is the Bible that confirms the gospel message that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and raised on the third day, so that we too can have eternal life and assurance in Christ. The third thing we can discover in this early creed is that it focused on one person and several significant events involving that one person. The apostle states that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he then appeared to all the apostles, over 500 sisters and brothers, and finally to Paul himself. Every heresy known in the early church distorts both who Christ is and what happened at his death and resurrection. Many of those false teachings survive in new forms today. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses distort Christ's bodily resurrection by claiming that he rose only as a spirit. But Jesus says something different. In Luke 24, 39, he appeared to his disciples and said, Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Also, the Church of Latter-day Saints states that Jesus was a spirit being. He was created by God and is the same as all human beings. While they don't deny that he was crucified and rose again, they deny that he is equal with the Father. In fact, the Mormon view of Jesus is that he is actually no different than any of us, only that he had a special role to fulfill. But if we're to believe that, then we must ignore the very words of Christ who proclaimed, I and the Father are one. Jesus did not leave us with that option. Islam views Jesus as just another man in a long line of prophets. Muslims deny that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and they believe that the claims to his divinity were made up by later Christians. Even the atheists of today admit that Jesus walked the earth. The evidence is too demanding for them to say otherwise, but they too distort who he is. Rather than being the son of God, they claim that he was just a good moral teacher. But the atheists are not alone. The very first attack of the so-called emerging church, as we've seen already, is against the authority of scripture. Then they attack the existing church for being too conservative. And finally, they attack the person and the message of Christ. He becomes just another good teacher in their view. But again, Jesus did not give us that option. I think C.S. Lewis sums it up best. He says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. The central message of Christianity is not on a thought, a feeling, or an activity. It is on a person. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, without the person of Christ and his work on the cross, there is no Christianity. I will say that again if you take nothing away from this message but this. Without the person and the work of Jesus Christ personally in your life, there is no Christianity. 
So far, we've discussed three points that have helped us define what it means to be a Christian and who Christ is according to the gospel message. The key event of the gospel tradition is the resurrection of Jesus. It is essential to our faith. It is so important that Paul proclaims in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. I don't know about all of you, but I tend to trust and believe the words of a person who dies and then rises again. And since he claims to be God, then we had better listen to what he has to say. The resurrection validates who Jesus is and confirms the truth of his claims. Also in the text, Paul provides a list of many eyewitnesses to demonstrate the historical reliability of the resurrection. We too can also take a three-leg approach today to validate the historicity of the gospel message so that we might defend our claims. These three lines of evidence are independently established facts. Even today's critical historians accept them as historically reliable. The first proof we can explore is the empty tomb itself and the fact that Jesus died and was buried. This is accepted by virtually all critical historians, from ultra-liberal scholars to Bible-thumping conservatives. So you might ask, why does the fact that Jesus was buried prove that the tomb was empty? See, the answer is, is that the location of Jesus' tomb was, would have been known to everyone in Jerusalem, from the Romans to the Jews and to Jesus' followers. One of the most remarkable facts about the start of Christianity is that it flourished and grew in the very city where Christ was crucified. The people there would have known if the tomb was empty or not, yet this idea of an empty tomb was never challenged. It's also important to note that Jesus' followers were not expecting him to be raised again. They were Jews, and the Jewish concept of the resurrection was very different than what we understand today. To the Jews, the resurrection was only an end times expectation. None of Jesus' followers expected him to be raised on the third day. They did not expect an empty tomb. Finally, the Jewish leaders of that day could have easily dispelled any myth that Jesus had been resurrected if his body was still in the tomb. Therefore, all scholars agree that the tomb was found empty shortly after Jesus was buried. The second line of evidence are the recorded appearances of the risen Christ. In this passage, Paul lists in his message to the Corinthians several groups of people that claim to have seen Jesus risen and alive. These include Peter, the 12 apostles, James, and Paul himself. But one of the most important appearances that Paul cites is that Jesus appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. And he made an interesting note that some of them had died, but many are still alive. Why does Paul include this special note that some are alive? First, it's important to know that Jesus, that just like in any court or trial today, no one would offer eyewitnesses if their testimony was unreliable. Second, Paul couldn't even offer the testimony of of eyewitnesses if none existed. The claim of living eyewitnesses validates that there were people actually alive at the time that he penned this letter 
those people had witnessed the risen Christ. Paul's telling the Corinthians, go and check it out for yourself. There are people alive right now that you can validate this message I'm telling you. Interestingly, the Gospel of Matthew recounts another important piece of evidence concerning the empty tomb when Jesus appeared to Mary and Mary Magdalene. You see, this is a surprising statement to be made in a document written to Jews. This was the time of patriarchal culture. The testimony of women was regarded as unreliable and quickly dismissed. If the resurrection appearances were fabrications, they certainly would not have been made women as the first people that Jesus appeared to. So we can conclude that the evidence of these appearances is more than adequate to explain our belief that, the, that Jesus rose again. Even the most critical scholars and skeptics acknowledge that the disciples believed they had seen Jesus alive after his death. So you got to catch that. Even unbelieving skeptical scholars admit and believe that his disciples believed they had seen Jesus alive after his death. The third leg of evidence that we can explore concerning the resurrection claim of Christ is the origin of the Christian faith itself as propagated by Jesus' disciples. In first century Judaism, there were many claims of a Messiah figure that ultimately ended in the death of that person and his followers scattering, never to be seen or heard from again. In fact, we can see that when Jesus' disciples were questioned by the Sanhedrin after they started proclaiming his resurrection, we can see them address that very issue. In chapter 5 in the book of Acts, Luke states, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men, that's the apostles, to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all of his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. Gamaliel was a pretty wise man. We can conclude that the disciples would have been just another statistic in Gamaliel's list if their lives weren't fundamentally changed by what they had seen and experienced. It's also generally accepted that, and it confirmed for at least three, that most of the apostles were put to death because they proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord. The central message, the gospel message, was the teaching that the apostles accepted after witnessing the resurrection appearances of Christ. If they did not truly believe, it is very unlikely that they would have continued teaching a lie with the threat of execution. So there are many more lines of evidence concerning the resurrection of Jesus. There are many, many more, but we don't have a lot of time left. 
the best explanation for these three lines of evidence we have covered is that God did in fact raise Jesus Christ from the dead. It gives us firm historical grounds to affirm our belief in, his, in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and to defend the gospel message. So now we can circle back to where we started. We've discussed four key points about the gospel creed that Paul passed on to the Corinthians, and we have three facts to help us defend the gospel message itself. Let's now re-examine the command for each and every one of us to be an effective apologist for the cause of Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 states, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So there's several key things I want to cover before we close. And the band can go ahead and make their way on up. The phrase, always be prepared, implies that we need to actively learn and train in this area. In fact, the verb tense signifies that it's an ongoing process. Therefore, we should always be learning and growing in our faith. And we should always be learning enough to better understand how we define our faith and how we can defend it. This summer, we have an apologetics class that we're launching that will help us develop confidence in our convictions, have courageous conversation, and enhance your Christian calling to go and make disciples. If you want more information, you can see us at Next Steps or out at the table in the lobby, and we'll be happy to answer any questions you have about that. The second important part of this verse is, what we are to, is that we are to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason. That implies that people are questioning you about your faith. Why are you different? And why do you believe what you believe? You see, the task of an apologist isn't to win an argument, but instead it is to win a person. But we as Christians must be living a different kind of life for us to be accepted by a world that is desperate for answers. If we look like the rest of the world, then why would anyone have any inclination to ask us, why are you different? And that leads us to the last point about this passage. The very first part of the command says, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. The very first task of an apologist isn't to learn what to say, but instead it is to learn who you are, what you are, and who you belong to. If you are a Christian, does your lifestyle and behavior reflect that in your heart you revere Christ as Lord? If you have difficulty answering that question, then now is the time to ask God to help you begin living the apologetic life. That is a life that is attached to Jesus who is Lord over all aspects of your life, which may cause others to ask why you are different. To be sure, church, brothers, Sisters, it is a lifelong process, but it should be a daily process. There are some possibly here today that have never once acknowledged Christ as Lord over their hearts or their life. Even if you live in line with the Christian worldview, it is important to ask, is Christ Lord over my life? Perhaps you settled that long ago, but you need to renew your commitment to him. Or maybe... You've never realized the implications of this gospel message, and your ears are ringing with truth today. Is Christ calling you? 
Jesus Christ is the answer to our main problem, that we are sinners. On the cross, he accomplished for every believer what we cannot accomplish on our own. It is through this most precious gift, what we call grace, that he does this. He paid for our sins, he died, and he was buried and rose again, declaring victory over sin and death. Repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Jesus did not come to the earth to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Do you know him? Does he know you? The altar is open today. You can pray to him right now. I will also be over in next steps and there's some others over there that would love nothing more than to speak with you and to pray with you today. In whatever way or reason, if Christ is calling you today, respond. There's never a better time than right now when he's calling out to you. Will you pray with me? Father God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we welcome you into our hearts today to change us, to grow us, to conform us to your son's image. We thank you for your teaching of the Bible and its revelation so that we can come to know you better and understand your will for our lives. I pray that through this church, you will fundamentally change our perspective to look to you for all aspects of our life. May those that hear you calling respond today. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.